If you have your Bibles or your Scripture journals, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 5. Luke and chapter 5. We are going to be in verses 17. We left off last week through 32, okay? Luke 5 and 17 through 32. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along as well. And if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's, uh, let's read this together. Luke 5, starting in verse 17. God's Word says, On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he was laying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. This is God's Word. And may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. What is a disciple? I wonder how you'd answer that question. What is a disciple? If you're somehow able to survey every professing Christian, you'd surely get a whole host of varying answers, yes? What is a disciple? At the most basic level, when we think disciple, we should think Christian. In fact, the descriptor you will find in the Bible more than any description for those who have given their allegiance to Jesus is disciple. The word is everywhere in the New Testament as a title to those who have given their lives to Christ. But then, what does that look like? What, what does a disciple do? How is a disciple's life to be lived? You know, Almost 22 years ago, pastor and author John Piper stood before 40,000 college students and preached a sermon that would turn out to have a profound effect on a generation of Christians. But it wasn't the main content of the sermon that struck with the hearers, but an illustration that he gave. And in this illustration, Piper offered two stories of comparison. The first was telling about two of his church members who had been killed three weeks prior in Cameroon. Their, their names were Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards. Ruby was over 80 years old. She was single all her life, and she was a nurse. She poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and poor in the hardest places. Laura was a medical doctor in the Twin Cities. She was pushing 80 years old, and in her retirement, she decided to spend it by partnering with Ruby going from village to village in Cameroon. As they were driving, the brakes gave way. Over the cliff they go, and they died instantly. 
And he told the college students listening that he had told his church about Ruby and Laura's death, and he asked them this, is this a tragedy? He said, two women in their 80s almost, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, he asked. It is not a tragedy, said Piper. I'll read you what a tragedy is. And so he pulls out a page from the Reader's Digest, and he says this. This is a tragedy. The title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early. And he begins to read. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy, said Piper to the crowd. This is what he continued. He said, and there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. He said, with all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing, and look at my boat. Don't waste your life, he said. And the way to not waste your life, Piper said, is to give God glory for every gift. Because everyone, from a new car to physical safety to your next heartbeat, is grace bought and paid for through the cross. Am I popping, by the way? Or is that just me? It's just me? Okay, good. As you hear that, I wonder which one you think characterizes the life of an ordinary disciple more. And which do you think characterizes the life of an ordinary disciple more according to Jesus? Or perhaps we think there are different categories or classes of disciples. Those who collect seashells and those who risk for the gospel. Those who live a comfortable life and those who don't, and and that's just their lot in life, and this is just ours. In their book, The Trellis and the Vine, the authors say this, at the most basic level, the Bible says that Jesus doesn't have two classes of disciples, those who abandon their lives to his service and those who don't. The call to discipleship is the same for all. Then they ask this, and I want you to ask it of yourself. Would someone observing your life from the outside say, look, there is someone who has abandoned his or her life to Jesus Christ and his mission? How would you answer that? See, in our text this morning, we see some of the most important main elements of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus at the most basic level. And what it... What that looks like is accepting the call from Jesus to follow him, being willing to pay the cost of that lifetime of following and being commissioned to minister as he ministered. And let's allow those points to be our three points this morning. So if you didn't write those down, that's okay, I'll say them as we go. So point number one, the call. Point number one, the call. As you noted when we read this, there are two major scenes here, right? One takes place in a home and involves grumpy Pharisees and uh, the healing of a paralytic by Jesus, and the other involves a tax collector becoming a disciple of Jesus and grumpy Pharisees being put in their place because of their grumpiness, right? Now, on the surface, these two scenes may seem not to have much in common, or they may appear somewhat disconnected, but really they share a lot of similarities, which is why we're going to intertwine them together, okay? So, in scene one, we see Jesus in a house teaching, and his typical audience has some new members, doesn't it? Pharisees and teachers of the law, some all the way from Jerusalem. This shows us that Jesus' fame clearly has spread, yes? It has spread so that these religious leaders have come to check out and see what all the fuss is about, And the house is so full, there's no room for anyone to get in. 
especially not a couple guys who are carrying what? A bed with their friend who is paralyzed on it. And Mark's account of this same scene says there's not even room in the doorway. I mean, it's spilling out of the house into the alleyway. And so the men come up with a solution. They say, let's try what? The roof. <laughs> let's try the roof. And they could do this because Typically, in first century Palestine, there were stairs leading to a flat roof. And so they get up onto the roof, and then what do they do? They have another barrier, right? The roof itself. So they start tearing at the roof. And we can imagine. Can you imagine me in this room? Debris like falling on people in the house. And I just, I like to imagine that Jesus is getting a kick out of this. You know? And, and, and out of this faith of the man's paralyzed or the paralyzed man's friends, and they make a hole in the roof. Somehow they lower the man to the floor, and there he is right in front of Jesus. Is this not an astonishing scene? And the faith of this man and his friends is something to behold because their faith is active, isn't it? They believe that Jesus can provide graciously to meet the paralyzed man's need, like the leper we saw last week, and they take functional active steps based on that faith, right? Because faith is active, not passive. And Jesus says something they weren't expecting, and the religious leaders definitely were not expecting this. He says, man or friend, what? Your sins are forgiven. Why why does Jesus say that? The, The man just wants to be physically healed, and verse 17 notes that Jesus has the power to heal. And he's been exercising this the whole time. Well, why not just heal the man and go about his business? Why say your sins are forgiven? I'm going to leave you on the hook for a minute, okay? We'll answer that in a moment. But we see that at this claim from Jesus, the Pharisees, do they like that claim? No, they're incensed. But not enough to open their mouths, right? (laughs) But Jesus discerns their heart. And they're saying in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here's the thing. They're right, yes? They're right on that count. Only God can forgive sins. Isn't that true? I mean, not even the religious authorities could forgive sin at the temple. They could only facilitate sacrifices that were used to forgive sin. But here Jesus is, forgiving sins outside of the prescribed religious system. But even still, only God can forgive sins no matter what. Who does Jesus think he is? The only one who could forgive an offense, will you agree with me on this? The only one who could forgive an offense is the one who has been offended, yes? So imagine you're standing with a friend and you're talking to a third person, and, or you're talking to your friend, a third person showed up and punched your friend in the face, okay? Would you go up to the person that punched your friend and say, I forgive you? Both your friends, your friend is, is hurt and he'd, he'd be confused, right? Because who? You're not the offended party, right? Your friend is. How can you forgive that offense if it wasn't against you? You're not offended. You're not wrong. Your friend is. The religious leaders know that only God can forgive sins because God is the one whom all sins are ultimately against, yes? This upstart rabbi from Nazareth can't forgive sins unless he's the one who has been sinned against, i.e. God. Does this man think he's God? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, now unless the speaker is God, this is really preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on another man's toes and stealing another man's money? Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven, never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he was really God, whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. This is the point, yes? He really is God. 
and he really can forgive sins. If only God can forgive sins and Jesus just forgave sin, what are the only reasonable conclusions? Either he's a blasphemer and the Pharisees are right, or he is equal with God and able to forgive sins. But back to the original questions, why did he say this at all? Why not just heal him? Why not just wave a hand and heal him? Why say, son, friend, your sins are forgiven? This is why. Because Jesus knows the biggest need of this man is not that he is paralyzed and wants to walk. His biggest problem is his alienation from God. Not that he can't walk. His biggest need then is not to be healed, but to be forgiven. And that's the biggest need of every person, isn't it? Do you see that to be a disciple of Jesus means first and foremost seeing that your biggest need is that your sins be forgiven? Do you you realize that? But that's also seeing that you are as helpless to come before God and heal yourself as this man lying on a bed needed to be carried. We imagine, don't we, that we're not helpless. That even if we are sinners, that we at least have a walking stick. We're mostly walking, but maybe need a little help. We can mostly do it, but it would be great if God would come and render some minor aid and we'd be fine. It's like those Jesus is my co-pilot bumper stickers. You know those bumper stickers? And I prayed before this. I was like, please, nobody here have that bumper sticker. I don't know if you do, okay? But (laughs) you know those bumper stickers I'm talking about? Jesus is my co-pilot bumper sticker. You sometimes see on cars like, how awesome do you think you are that you retain possession of the steering wheel? Like you generally know where to go, but Jesus is like, They're just in case you need help or to take over for a few minutes while you catch some Z's, right? Friend, apart from God, Jesus is not your co-pilot, and you are not mostly okay with a little limp. We are unconscious in the back seat on a gurney, and Jesus retains full possession of the ambulance, Okay, so deep and pervasive is sin that we, like the paralytic, can't take one single step to salvation. Because verse 31, Jesus only saves and heals the sick and unable. This is the objective of his mission, yes? Only those who need forgiveness repent. Only sinners repent. Only the sick go to the great physician. The righteous do not because they see no need. Like the Pharisees there, they think they have no reason, so they make no appeal for healing of their deepest disease. He only saves those with the most serious illness of all. If you think you're mostly well, you have no need of Jesus. And, And if you're to be a disciple of Jesus, you must, at the most basic entry level, admit that your biggest need is forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, and that you cannot accomplish any of those things. You need someone outside of yourself to do it, and there's only one physician who could do it, and that's who? Jesus. And I wonder, what do you think your biggest need is? Honestly. I want you to just think, right now, What is it that you're anxious about? What is it that you're nervous about? What is it that you're afraid of? What is it? What what do you think you need? What do you, all of us have this. We look, what is it that you look at and you said, if only I had that, all would be well. Or only if I had more of that, everything would be okay. What, What is it for you? More time? You ever wish you had more time? More money? More approval? More possessions? A better job? More vacation? More free time? More recognition? Better relationships? What is it 
for you that deep down in your heart of hearts, you think you need the most. You know, an illustration I like to use because I'm a, a nerd uh, is that, uh, and you've heard me say it before, it comes from the book and movie. Did somebody amen that? Uh, Harry, <laughs> you heard me use it before several times, actually. It's from uh, the book and the movie Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Harry Potter's and the Philosopher's Stone. There's a scene where Harry, find, he stumbles upon this room that has a mirror in it. And the, when he looks into the mirror, he not only sees himself, but he sees his parents who died when he was a baby with their arms around him, looking happy and proud with their hands on, their shoulder, on his shoulder. And so Harry runs, and he goes and finds his best friend, Ron, and he tells him what he saw, right? And so he takes Ron back to the mirror, thinking that Ron will also see Harry's parents, right? But Ron stands in front of this mirror, and instead he sees himself as the captain of the sports team. And he's holding the championship cup, and he's standing alone, and all of his siblings are like in the corner looking jealously at him because he's better than they are. Well, Harry doesn't understand what the mirror is about until later his mentor explains that the mirror is called Erised, which since it's a kid's book, is not very subtle. It's desire spelled backwards because the mirror shows you the deepest desire of the person's heart who is looking into the mirror. Now, if such a mirror really existed, I wonder what would be revealed to you? Like, what is not only the deepest desire of your heart, but where you've located, what you've located as something you think you need in order to be whole, complete, happy, or satisfied? Jesus shows us in this scene that our biggest need is having our sins forgiven. Only that will change your life and eternity. You may well get a hold of that other thing, whatever it might be, but it won't change your eternity. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you have seen your need and like the paralytic man, have also seen that only Jesus can provide what you truly need. And that's forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who sees themselves for who they truly are apart from God. A sinner, a rebel, hopelessly lost, but then they see that Jesus is the only one who can reverse the curse. And so lost are we that we need to be carried to Jesus. We, need, we needed him to give the invitation like he did to Levi in verse 27. Follow me. And if you respond to that invitation and the initi initiative of the Lord, you will thus be made righteous because of Christ and his life and his death and his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension, and you will see in the end, in this life, he's really all you need. That's a disciple. Does that characterize you? Because once you see this and respond to this, to Jesus' call to follow, you must realize that this following is costly. This brings us to our second point, point number two, the cost. For this, I want you to consider scene number two that we looked at. In this scene, we see Jesus going about, and he sees this man, Levi, you might also know him as Matthew, who's a tax collector, and he's sitting in his tax booth, H&R Block, right? No, that's not the same. And Jesus goes up to him, and he says two words, one word in Greek, follow me. What's Levi do? He gets up and he follows him. Now again, this is scandalous, okay? Jesus is going to have how many disciples? Let's get your Sunday school answers in. Okay, why on earth would he make one of them a tax collector? Do you guys like tax collectors? Tax collectors, who's like, I love the IRS, right? Tax collectors were considered the bottom of the barrel in social standing in first century Palestine, everyone hated them to a person. They were considered thieves and race traitors because they worked for the opposing empire, the oppressing empire. See, you know, Rome hired local, locals to collect taxes for them, and they said, whatever you collect over the percentage that we fix, you could keep. 
So let's say Rome told the collectors that they needed to collect 10%. If the tax collector could somehow extort 20%, guess what? They got to keep that extra 10. And people knew they were doing this, but there was nothing they could do about it. So tax collectors were considered collaborators, extortionists, race traders, and the Talmud, which was one of the Jews' religious books, classified tax collectors as robbers, and they couldn't even go in the synagogue. That's how much they hated these people. I think of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. You know him, right? From A Christmas Carol. Can we all agree, by the way, that the Muppets version is the best one? Anyway, <laughs> you remember what people thought of him, right? Everyone hated him, and they should have, right? He was a jerk. This is what Dickens writes about what people thought of Scrooge, okay? Nobody ever stopped him in the street to say with gladsome looks, my dear Scrooge, how are you? When will you come to see me? No beggars implored him to bestow a trifle. No children asked him what it was o'clock. No man or woman ever once in all his life inquired the way to such and such a place of Scrooge. Even the blind man's dogs appeared to know him. And when they saw him coming on, would tug their owners into doorways and up courts, and then would wag their tails as though they said, no eye at all is better than an evil eye, dark master. That's what people thought of tax collectors. Everyone hated him. No one wanted to be in their company, and you would avoid them at all costs. Who could possibly, after that description, who could possibly want to have anything to do with them? You know the answer, don't you? Jesus. Jesus would. In fact, Jesus takes the initiative towards sinners, towards society's outcasts, towards the helpless, hopeless, and lost. And this scene evidences all of that. Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And Levi gets up and goes. But this is a costly followership. Levi, as a tax collector, was wealthy. Even though he was a social pariah, <laughs> he was still doing very well, monetarily speaking. So wealthy was he that, verse 29, he could throw a gigantic feast in his considerably large house. Not everybody could do that. Now, I want you to consider this, okay? Think back to the beginning of the chapter. Jesus called Peter and his brother Andrew to follow him also. But they were fishermen, weren't they? If this whole discipleship thing didn't work out, guess what they could do? Go back to their fishing business, no problem. Levi, though, if he leaves that tax booth, guess what? He could never go back. Never go back to his job as a tax collector. Rome wouldn't want him. He leaves, and he's finished. When Levi gets up to follow Jesus, it's for the rest of his life. There's no alternatives for him. There is no plan B. Now, you add this to his wealth and his financial security, and what do you have? You have someone, verse 28, who truly left everything and rose and followed him. This is a costly decision for Levi. And what do you think his tax collector friends thought of this decision <laughs> to quit his job, leave his wealth behind, and follow this homeless rabbi? They think he was nuts, right? They think he was throwing his life away. They'd say, well, what are you doing, Levi? Look at all your wealth. Look at all you have. Look at the financial security you have. What are you throwing this all away to follow this Jesus? But don't you see that what Levi is doing, what he's risking, what it's costing him to follow Jesus is not extraordinary discipleship. It's ordinary discipleship. To be a disciple of Jesus means costly followership and any idea we have that we can follow Jesus and it not cost us anything is not something, is something that is fundamentally different than what the Bible says. Neil Postman said it this way, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it's another kind of religion altogether. Says Dean and Sarah also, self-proclaimed Christians who worship a God that requires no self-sacrifice, no obedience, no submission, and no surrender are not worshiping the God of the Bible, no matter how much they claim they love Jesus. In his own words, Jesus tells us what it looks like to love him. If you love me, you will keep my commands. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Many people want the good luck charm of Jesus, not the sacrificial lamb of God whose death requires action. But friends, that Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. 
To follow Jesus means to live a life that is utterly altered by Jesus, and such a thing will cost, yes? It, it must. I mean, if what we said at our first point is true, okay, that we are unable to take even one single step towards God, that we are hopeless and helpless and sinful rebels without God, and God needed to take the divine initiative to take on flesh and live and die in our place so that we could just be reconciled to him, then how could it be that to be a disciple of Jesus is anything but a complete alteration and upending of our entire life? We, we don't need adjustment. We need to be utterly remade. You know, there's a house next to mine that I'm convinced is haunted, okay? Everything around it, like I picture, remember the ghosts from Mario? Like just floating around the outside of it, okay? Everything around it is overgrown, like taller than me. And the roof is falling in. You can visibly see it caving in. The door is always open, okay? It no longer closes. It's full of critters and ghosts. The paint is completely chipped away. The windows are all broken in, and it's been unoccupied and unattended for decades. You know what it doesn't just need? A coat of paint, and then to be put on the market. <laughs> it needs to be completely and utterly gutted. It needs to be torn up and rebuilt, and that's what Jesus means to do for us. We don't need to slap a coat of paint on the outside. <laughs> we need Jesus to come and remake us from the inside out. Understand that the call to follow Jesus was not understood by Luke as a call to half-hearted loyalty, but is involving a continual, lifelong, full-life transformation that even changes how we think of and define life itself. It should cost to be a disciple of Jesus, shouldn't it? It should cost the sin you've been coddling. The friends you have kept, even though they drag you down, rather than building you up. It should cost you your comfort. It could cost you your reputation. It could cost you family. It could cost you job security. It could cost you your dreams of material gain. It could cost you denying yourself all kinds of extracurricular activity and entertainment. It should cost anything that's keeping you from getting more of Jesus. And it could even cost your life. You know, I think one of the biggest things that's keeping people in our time and nation from Jesus and even keeping Christians from costly discipleship is what's called FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? It's fear of missing out. Our new dread as a society is that we will miss out on something or some things. The fear that at the end of our lives, we will look back and regret all the things we didn't do. There's even an Oxford English Dictionary entry for it. This is what it defines. An anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may be happening elsewhere, often aroused by the posts we've seen on a social media website. So we perpetually keep our options open, and committing to cost of discipleship stands in the way of what we think is living our lives to the fullest. It reminds me of St. Columba. Has anybody ever heard of him before? He was a 6th century monk, and he left his native Ireland with 12 men to bring the gospel to a pagan people in Scotland. And when he got there, they, they, they traveled in this, this animal hide wicker boat, okay? When they got there, he knew he and his companions might be tempted to leave when life got too comfortable or too dangerous. And so the story goes... You know what he did? He burned them. He burned the boat. This is what Amy Joseph says at the Gospel College. She says, Columba and his crew had to burn the vessels that might have tempted them to escape back to the familiarity of kin and country. Likewise, each new disciple of Christ has a boat or fleet of boats that might lead back to a life more lucrative, more culturally celebrated, or simply more comfortable. For some, a former relationship that trumped Christ is the boat that beckons backwards. For others, the approval of unbelieving family continue whispers, don't be a religious fanatic, loosen your grip on Christ just a bit. Often in our money-minded culture, the boats that demand burning would drift us back to a more padded retirement fund or some financial frivolity. Whatever the shape or style, any boat that leads us away from following Christ must be burned. 
as often as they're built. While this sounds overwhelming and almost impossible, remember that the one who asks for a commitment to himself, his word, and his ways has also fully committed himself to us. When we have Christ, we have not missed out on anything. We have gained everything. Friend, do you realize this? Can I ask, what is following Jesus costing you? Is it costing you anything? See, I'm a, you know what I'm afraid of? This is what we do with a story like this. Of Levi and his, his, his leaving everything to follow Jesus. And I think what we do is we say, Jesus isn't calling me to that. That kind of sacrifices for those people, for other people. But can I suggest something? What if what we see in Levi is what Jesus expects from every disciple? Perhaps not in terms of just quitting our jobs and selling everything, but that being an ordinary disciple means living a costly life. And recognizing that one of the biggest enemies to following Jesus is our impulse towards comfort and ease. Because it's separately linked to the costliness of discipleship is the next aspect of what it means to be a disciple in our third and final point. Point number three. Let's call it the commission. The commission. We see two important responses in these two scenes to Jesus' actions of forgiving, healing, and calling. In the first scene, we see the Pharisees upset with Jesus telling the man that his sins are forgiven. All right, and then Jesus asks, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Which one's easier? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because no one can prove you wrong. <laughs> right? How do you prove that his sins aren't forgiven? You can't. But Jesus says, so that you know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, what? Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. This is sort of a, a mic drop moment for Jesus, isn't it? If Michael Scott was there, he would say, boom, roasted, right? This self-designation, now, son of man, highlight circle, note that, please. It's an important one for Luke, and, and note it every time you see it in Luke, because it's mentioned 25 times in this letter alone. And this, this title is taken from the book of Daniel and is the one who is given authority from the ancient of days, okay? So Jesus is making a big claim to authority here, right? But the proof is in the pudding. Daryl Box says this, if the paralytic man walks, the miracle talks about the son of man's authority to forgive sins. If the son of man possesses such unique authority, then who is the son of man other than God's unique agent of salvation? This is the question the miracle raises. So the man gets up, and how quickly does he get up? What's it say? Immediately. He picked up his bed. He went home. Now, I want you to note this also. Glorifying God. And amazement grabbed hold of everyone, and they were filled with awe. This is one of the marks of the disciple. Glorifying God and unfettered joy. Luke will show over and over again that with the saving action of Christ came gratitude and joy. And desire to glorify God. Encounters with Jesus bring joy and a song to one's heart. How could they not? Were you not overjoyed at your salvation, friend? If everything we said in our first point is true, if we were dead in our sins and trespasses and Jesus came to us and died for us and rose for us and offered us life anew, how can we respond with anything other than joy? Right? And a desire to glorify God. What else is there? A disciple is someone whose life is characterized by joy. That doesn't mean everything in your life goes right. But it means the more and more you can face hard things with the joy of the Lord because you know your life and your eternity, indeed the whole universe, rests in the hands of this loving Savior. Joyless Christianity, you realize this, is a contradiction. I've met some professing Christians who are like the world's biggest grumps. They're like the Pharisees here. You know what I mean? They see no joy in others, and they're like, what's so funny, right? That's their posture all the time. What's so funny? They look like there's lemon juice in the communion cup. You know what I mean? Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes life's pains call for lament and sorrow and mourning and weeping. Those are right responses to when life hurts. But if there's no joy in your life, 
there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. And this joy means that all the things we've mentioned in our second point about discipleship being costly, we won't mind as much because we don't find our ultimate joy in things of earth, but in Christ alone because he's our all in all. And he's our glory. He's our love. He's our champion. And we see he's worth it. And he's done it before us and he's there with us. And we are convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. If our joy is found in stuff of earth, any of that can be taken from us like that. But if Jesus is our joy and we live for his glory and he can't be taken from us, what on earth is there to fear in following him? If we know nothing on earth can satisfy us, why on earth would we pursue those things instead of Jesus? Why would we let them get in our way of more of him? Do you know what the greatest irony of uh, our FOMO happiness-pursuing obsessed culture is? Do you know what the, the greatest irony is? I want you to think about it. Americans as a whole invest more time and money and emotional energy in the explicit pursuit of happiness than any other nation on earth. Billions of dollars a year, in fact. But you ready for the irony? For all of our pursuit of happiness, for all of our wealth as a nation, it has been found that we are one of the most unhappy countries in the world. I mean, what happens if you get everything you want? You'll be happy. No, you'll want more. It'll never be enough. Like, when Tom Brady won his third Super Bowl ring, he did an interview with 60 Minutes, and this is what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, you've reached your dream, your goal. Me, I think there's got to be more than this. Millionaire. One of the greatest, if not the greatest, to play professional football, wins three Super Bowl rings, has a long career in front of him, and he says, this is it? Why? Because the things of earth will never be enough. Even if we had them all. Because our hearts were made to be filled with something the world cannot provide. As Augustine said, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If we find our joy in Christ alone, then whatever it costs to follow him will be worth it. And you know what that joy should do to you? It should push you out to service for him and his kingdom, to leveraging your life for his glory and fame so that you can, like the paralytic's friends, carry others to the feet of Jesus so that they can know him too. I want you to consider scene two again. What does Levi do immediately after deciding to follow Jesus? What's he do? Go ahead and say it. He throws a lavish what? Party. Guess who's mad about it? The Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled because that's what discontented people do, right? They grumble, they murmur, they slander, they gossip because they have no joy. What are they grumbling about? See, Realize this, they're not mad that Jesus is associating with sinners and tax collectors. What's their problem? They don't like that he's eating with them because in the ancient world to eat with someone was to signify acceptance of them. Jesus accepts society's outcasts and the religious don't like that. And that's still true today, isn't it? So they grumble. And this is when Jesus says that he's come as a physician for the sick and to call repentance to the unrighteous. Tom, Tom Schreiner says this, we see the perfect approach in Jesus Christ. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. He loves them and extends grace to them, but at the same time, he calls them to repentance. As churches and believers, we need both grace and truth, love and justice, mercy and righteousness. Here's the commission of the disciple, okay? To do ministry the way Jesus and the first disciples did ministry. To do ministry the way Jesus and his first disciples did ministry. Don't you think it's fair to say Levi leveraged his life and his circumstances and his friendships and his possessions for the kingdom, right? Isn't that true? You can speak. It's okay. Nobody's going to confuse you for Pentecostals, I promise, all right? 
He leveraged his life and his possessions and his friendship for the kingdom of Christ so that others could meet Jesus. Shouldn't we do that too? Shouldn't we use our lives where God has us to reach others for the kingdom of Christ, don't you think? To tell them about Jesus? Doesn't God sovereignly have you in the job you have and in the neighborhood you're in and the relationships you have for a reason? If he's sovereign, doesn't he mean for us to leverage our careers and relationships, our hobbies, our kids' activities, and even our homes to reach people for Christ? Or do you give us all that stuff for the sake of our own kingdom? What do you think? You know, do you realize this? No one on earth can reach the people you can reach because no one on earth is positioned the way you are uniquely positioned. Do you realize that? And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you have been commissioned. Do you realize that too? You know what I think we need is a mind shift on how God designed the church and how he designed ministry and missions and outreach. See, we have been conditioned and we have been trained to think ministry primarily happens at a church building and is done primarily by hired professionals. Yes? Come and see. Or we think if we are to serve the church, it must be through having like an official title <laughs> or being on a committee, which by the way, read your New Testament and tell me where committees are at, okay? They can be helpful, they're not there, all right? Or be asked to lead a ministry or a class and then we can clock out, we go back to our regularly scheduled lives and all that is over. But is that how the Bible thinks of ministry? Do you think? Listen to this from Marshall and Payne I mentioned at the beginning. They said, listen, this is how we're used to thinking about the involvement of church members in congregational life. In terms of jobs and roles, usher, Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher, treasurer, elder, musician, song leader, money counter, and so on. The implication of this way of thinking for congregation members is clear. If all the jobs and roles are taken, then there's really nothing for me to do in this church. I'm reduced to being a passenger. I'll just wait until I'm asked to do something. The implication for pastoral staff is similar. Getting people involved in activity means finding a job for them to do. In fact, the church growth gurus say that giving someone a job to do within the first six months of their joining your church is vital for them to feel like they belong. However, if the real work of God is people work, the prayerful speaking of his word by one person to another, then the jobs are never taken. The opportunities for Christian to do ministry personally to others is limitless. Do you see? We, must, we, we have to shift our thinking from come and see to go and tell. We should come here and get equipped so that we could go out and leverage our lives for the gospel. You are serving the church even when you sit with someone who is by themselves in the gathering or, or intentionally getting to know another member who you don't know so well or, or loving someone who is hurting, going out of your way to send that text or make that call or forgiving those who have wronged you with no thought of recompense or having that uncomfortable conversation of gentle rebuke with a brother or sister in ongoing sin or telling strangers or acquaintances that what Jesus has done for you in the world. Or building relationships at your kids' soccer games with another parent so that you can eventually have that gospel conversation. Or having someone over for dinner so you can show them you care about them. Or even intentionally building relationships with people who are nothing like you. That's all service. That's all ministry. That's all doing it for the church. Ministry like this is a lot less comfortable though, right? And harder and more time consuming than ministry the way we might think of it. It's a full orb ministry of using your whole life for the kingdom of Christ. It's constantly looking for ways to use what God has given you to minister to others seven days a week. It means entering into uncomfortable spaces to live like Jesus. It means like the paralytic's friend going as far as you need to go to carry other people to Jesus' feet. It means forsaking things in your life that you would rather be doing because you know there are things you can be doing to leverage where God has you for the glory of Christ. How did Jesus do ministry? How did the Pharisees do ministry? 
You know, they were incensed because they believed in salvation by separation, while Jesus believed in salvation by association. And he's commissioning his disciples to go, to gather and be equipped and then pour out their daily lives for his glory. He did ministry by being with people. He sought them out. He accepts them when no one else would. But he also challenged them to repent and receive the God who binds up wounds and brings the sick to health. Is that not how we are to do ministry too? Not from the safety of our clean, expensive church building, but in the trenches of daily life and relationships? At the most basic level, to be a disciple of Jesus means to see our need of him. That he alone could save us and give us purpose and meaning and value that we desire and crave. It means to count the cost. And living our lives for him and his glory, it means being commissioned by him to take his gospel to our community and even the ends of the earth. Friend, are you a disciple of Jesus? If not, look to him and see his beauty and hear his call of follow me and give your life to him and begin living for him in his kingdom. But be aware, it costs to follow him, but it's worth it because you get him and he's everything. If you are a disciple of Jesus, is it costing you, I wonder? Have you been putting off true followership of Jesus? because things of earth have weighed you down and distracted you and dazzled your wandering eyes. It's time to return to center, beloved of God. See who Jesus is afresh and find joy and satisfaction and rest in his arms. Then pray that the Spirit of God would help you see ways to leverage your life for his kingdom and that he will empower you in every way. Now, what I want to do I want to read a quote from David Platt real quick, and then I just, we're going to have some time of quiet contemplation, just a couple of minutes to provide for you, and I want you during that time just to pray to God, to open your eyes how you can leverage your life for the kingdom, okay? How to spot things in your life to use for his glory and how to reach people who you know for Jesus. Let me read this quote, and then we'll have a couple of minutes for that. David Platt says, you and I have an average of about 70 or 80 years on this earth, During these years, we are bombarded with the temporary. Make money, get stuff, be comfortable, live well, have fun. In the middle of it all, we get blinded to the eternal, but it's there. You and I stand on the porch of eternity. Both of us will soon stand before God to give an account for our stewardship of the time, the resources, the gifts, and ultimately the gospel he has entrusted to us. When that day comes... I'm convinced we will not wish we had given more of ourselves to living the American dream. We will not wish we had made more money, acquired more stuff, lived more comfortably, taken more vacations, watched more television, pursued greater retirement, or been more successful in the eyes of this world. Instead, we will wish we had given more of ourselves to living for the day when every nation, tribe, people, and language will bow around the throne and sing the praise of the Savior who delights in radical obedience and the God who deserves eternal worship.